1: Today on Something You Should Know, dogs will eat almost anything, but they actually have two favorite flavors. I'll tell you what they are. Plus, if you want to have a good day more often, expect to have a good day more
2: often. So if you go into a conversation expecting someone to be a jerk, your brain will make sure that you see everything that confirms that you're right that they're a jerk. Your brain will always make sure that you see more of what's already top of mind for you. That's something that many people will know of as confirmation bias.
1: Also, if you have to present something in a meeting, try not to go first. And lots of fascinating facts you probably never knew. Here are two.
0: So astronauts have to sleep near fans so they don't suffocate in their own exhaled breath. 96% of people can tell the difference between the sound of hot and cold water being poured. All
1: this today on Something You Should Know. Something you should know. Fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. You know, most of my life I have had dogs. I did have a pretty cool cat when I was in high school, boxer. But for the most part, I have lived my life With at least one dog in the house, and sometimes more than one dog in the house. So I've always been fascinated by what makes dogs tick, what they like, what they don't like, and what, as a pet owner, you should and should not do. And at least when it comes to my dogs, few, if any, well, actually none of them, uh, could have ever been described as a picky eater. And it does seem that most dogs will eat what you put in front of them as long as they're hungry enough. but. According to Paulette Cooper, author of the book 27 Secrets Your Dog Wants You to Know, dogs do have two favorite flavors, according to research. They are liver and chicken, which is probably something you didn't know. Now, you've probably also heard that you should not give chocolate to a dog, which is true. But what you may not know is you should also not give dogs meat from your table, The fat content in the meat we eat could actually give a dog a fatal attack of pancreatitis. My current dog, Taffy, got a pretty bad bout of pancreatitis after getting into something. And actually, one of David Letterman's dogs died from pancreatitis after it got a hold of a whole ham. Chicken, turkey, bacon, any kind of meat for humans is probably a bad idea for a dog. Ever wonder what your dog thinks about all day? Well, like many humans, they think mostly about food and romance. Doggy romance. Dogs cannot think about the future, and they do not dwell on the past, and they have no idea that one day they will die. So, what's left to think about besides food and romance? And that is something you should know. Have you ever had a bad day? (laughs) Of course you have. You've probably had some really, really, really bad days where it seems that nothing goes right. But then you also have those days where everything just seems to go your way. So often, it appears to be the result of chance. Things either just line up perfectly on those great days, or they fall apart completely on the bad days. But what if you could have more control over whether or not you have a good day? Well, perhaps you can. Caroline Webb has taken a look at the behavioral science, the neuroscience, and the psychology that we can all use to make every day, or at least most days, better days. Caroline is the author of the book, How to Have a Good Day. Welcome, Caroline.
2: Thank you. I'm delighted to be here.
1: So, who doesn't want a good day? But how do you define a good day? What's a good day to you?
2: Well, over the years, I worked with hundreds, perhaps even thousands of clients and asked them that same question. I asked them, what is a good day for you? I also asked them, what's a bad day and what will give you more good days? And so over the years, what I noticed was that actually there were pretty common themes that emerged across countries, across age groups, across uh, gender, across industry. And it was pretty much what I'm sure you would say, which is that you know we like to feel as if we are using our time in a way that feels like it's directed at things that matter to us. We want to feel that we're doing well at what we're doing, and you know, we feel good about the interactions that we're having, that we're uh, bringing the best of ourselves to, to the problems that we're solving, and that we feel like we've got the energy to carry on. So I
1: would imagine that, that most people would agree with that, but, but is it your sense that we're not having the, those days often enough?
2: Yeah, I mean, people are not not feeling engaged. The, the statistics suggest that 30% of us in the U.S. Uh, feel engaged in the work that we do, which is, <laughs> leaves a lot of people not feeling engaged. And what I noticed over the years was that although I had wonderful jobs, uh, many different types of jobs, uh, even in really good jobs, there are lots of people having days where you feel more drained than you would like and more worn down. You know, at th- the end of the day, you, you, you struggle to answer that third question really effectively, uh, saying, yes, I do feel great. I feel really excited about the next day.
1: But it does seem, before we get into that, it does seem that a lot of whether or not I have a good day, objectively, not whether I feel good or not good, but whether my day goes well, has a lot to do with what other people do or don't do
2: <laughs> yeah that's a really fair point yeah I'm, I'm definitely not one of those people who says you know just stand in front of the mirror in the morning and chant, everything is awesome <laughs> and you know everything will be awesome i you know there is luck and what i've become interested in was what's our wiggle room you know within and around the constraints that we all face as human beings what is there that research tells us we can do to improve our lot where is the control that we have that we're not already exploiting so you know I'm not saying that every day can be amazing <laughs> you know, people often say to me well why didn't you write how to have an amazing day or how to have an awesome day and I've got a. <laughs> A sort of trite answer which is, well, obviously I'm British, so you know we don't say things
1: like that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but it's also because I think, you know, I think good is more reasonable as an aspiration. I think luck often comes into awesome, but good is something that we we have more control over than we we tend to think.
1: So dive in. Where how do we start this?
2: The deep meta message that I would say goes through all of my work, and the thing that I'm perhaps most fascinated by is that the reality that we experience is actually a construct. You know, we, we think we're experiencing objective reality, but actually our brain can only process a tiny amount of what's around us at any given time. I mean, By one estimate, we can process consciously 50 bits of information and we're surrounded by trillions at any given moment. So you know, the, the reality that we think we're experiencing is actually quite significantly uh, shaped by our own perceptions and that's something that many people will know of as confirmation bias so whatever is top of mind for you will determine what it is that you then go on to see or hear Uh, so if you go into a conversation expecting someone to be a jerk your brain will make sure that you see everything that confirms that you're right that they're a jerk and so there are you know a number of quite simple mental tricks that you can use to acknowledge and sort of hack the fact that your brain will always make sure that you see more of what's already top of mind for you.
1: So put that concept of confirmation bias, put that into a real life situation to, to illustrate how it works.
2: Have you heard of the, the gorilla studies, you know, on, on selective attention?
1: Yeah, where they, they yeah. showed people a video that had a gorilla running through it and then nobody actually saw the gorilla.
2: Exactly, exactly. So that was Chris Chabrie and Dan Simon's um, sort of iconic study where they had a bunch of people playing basketball. And the idea was that you counted the passes between the people who were wearing the white T-shirts. Uh, there was another team wearing black T-shirts. And reliably, half the people don't see the fact that halfway through the video, there's a woman in a gorilla suit. You don't know it's a woman, but she's in a she's in a big gorilla suit. Walks across uh, the field of play stands still for quite a long time, beats her chest, then walks off. Only half the people watching actually see the gorilla. And that was one of the first studies in the field of selective attention, which is uh, to say that when you are looking out for one thing, you are very, very, very likely to not see the other thing. And uh, there are lots of studies like... um, uh, There have been sort of homages to that that gorilla study, like uh, one that was done with a bunch of radiologists at Harvard that uh, had them look through a bunch of lung scans. And in the last of the lung scans, there was a picture of a plastic gorilla printed. And 83% of the radiologists didn't see the gorilla because they weren't looking for it. So what does this mean for us? Uh, It means that if you take a few seconds before going into a meeting that matters or even frankly just sitting in the beginning of the day and say okay what is my aim (laughs) what 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 really matters to me here yes this person that i'm going to talk to might have been a jerk in the past but what is it that i want to have top of mind that i'm really going to look out for and if it's um more collaboration that you're looking for and you decide to say okay i'm going to look out for signs of collaboration you will magically see more of that uh, because it's a gorilla that you've decided to look out for. And if you didn't, you'd probably miss it. It's just that powerful.
1: Well, everybody has that experience. I mean, if if you deal with the same people all the time, you, you create these preconceived ideas that, you know, if I talk to this guy on the phone, he's going to go on forever, and I'm going to, you know, he's a windbag, or... Or she's a, she's an idiot and she doesn't know what she's talking about. And So if you go into the conversation with that preconceived idea, that's exactly what you're going to see.
2: Yeah, it's so true. And you can get into a vicious circle. You know, if you've got a colleague who's been underperforming uh, or a, a spouse who's been annoying you, and, uh, you know, that's that's what you've got top of mind. Your brain will make sure that you see things that confirm your expectations. And, you know, that can get you into a very tricky uh, tricky vicious circle as I say um, so I am not saying that the, you know your spouse is not being annoying or you know that your colleague isn't uh, being annoying I am just saying that you know there are there is a lot that we miss every single day by by design right I mean otherwise our brains will get overloaded like a computer with all of its keys pressed at once. So it's it's important and necessary that we're able to filter out stuff that doesn't seem relevant. It's just that our brain sometimes gets it wrong as to what's relevant and not relevant. And we can be a bit more deliberate in sort of setting the filters, if you like, uh, right. to decide what we should see and what we should, you know, ignore.
1: Well, I've always thought, and, and it's been my experience, that one of the reasons people miss things, they miss that gorilla in whatever it is they're doing, is they're trying to do too much. They're trying to take on too many things.
2: It turns out that actually um, our conscious brain, as well as only being able to process a certain amount of information at any given time, can only really do one thing uh, at a time. So when we think we're multitasking, what we're asking our conscious brain to do our, is, is the poor thing's supposed to actually try and juggle these things. And what it's doing is instead of doing them in parallel, it is switching frantically from one task to another so you know you've got your email and you may be on a conference call at the same time you are maybe trying to talk to someone who's just come in to talk to you and you think you're magically masterfully doing all of these things at once but actually what you're doing is you know your brain is frantically switching from one thing to another to another to another and in each of those switches your brain is losing a bit of time and mental energy so the research uh, is pretty clear that actually We make between two and four times as many mistakes when we multitask and which is exactly as you said. And then uh, we also slow ourselves down. We we feel super busy. We're actually typically taking uh, about 30 percent longer, even on two simple tasks we're running in parallel. So, you know, if you want to get more done and you want to do it better. One of the most powerful interventions is this question of how do you do one thing at a time more often than we typically do these days with all of the incoming messages that distract us.
1: My guest today on Something You Should Know is Caroline Webb. She's author of the book, How to Have a Good Day. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, Caroline, I think for me, when I have a lot of things to do and I'm tempted to multitask, I know that if I stop and write it down and then say, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this. So I'm not keeping track of what has to be done in my head, but it's actually on a piece of paper. It just calms me down, and then allows me to go one, two, three, four, and then it all it all gets done.
2: Absolutely, and that's a that's another aspect of uh, the limitations of our our brain, and and working with that rather than against it. So uh, we have something called working memory, just like computers, which is our mental scratch pad, and you know we can we can only hold a certain amount in that space, and if you are worrying about 19 things which a lot of us are or you know 99 things all the time you're using up some of that mental capacity and it's just very hard to get any good thinking done if you are using your working memory to kind of think about oh my god what are all the things i need to do so i do talk about the power of actually outsourcing um, your working memory uh, to a piece of paper um, when you are feeling overwhelmed, it's very helpful to actually sort of take a piece of paper or, an, or a, uh, your notepad function on your phone or whatever and just say, okay, what are all the things that are on my mind? And then that actually essentially clears the cache. It creates more space for you to think, uh, to, to, to use that working memory on the real stuff that matters. So there is really good science behind that instinct that you have there.
1: And also, uh, and I've heard other people talk about how, you know, it's it's very common to tackle the simplest, easiest things in the beginning of the day, because it's, it's easy to check those off the list. And really, that's the time to use your—the early part of the day is the time to go after the bigger tasks. But I actually like the fact that I can check things off my list. It kind of creates a momentum for the day. So I, hmm. I like doing those little things early, because then I look and go, Hey, look, I've got all this done. Look at me go.
2: <laughs> yeah that's right i mean actually the research on goal setting is very clear on that that yes of course it's great to have lofty goals we want that but we're actually more effective when we've broken down those big goals into really small tiny steps that give us uh that that boost that uh, you know and there is real neuro- neurochemistry that underpins this that you know we are more likely the brain likes to repeat things that feel rewarding so if you set yourself a small goal and achieve it Your brain feels like, oh, right, okay, I'm going to feel like, you know, doing more. And I also like what you're saying about being careful about uh, advice around how you should start your day. I'm basically a vampire, you know, I'm such a late night person. So a lot of the advice about this is what you should do first thing in the morning just doesn't work for me. Me
1: neither. In fact, there are so many time management gurus that say, you know, you really shouldn't check your email first thing in the morning. And I could no more not check my email first thing in the morning than I could fly to the moon. I mean, how do you not <laughs> check your email first thing in the morning? I mean, I don't. I, I couldn't not do that. And how long? It's not like it just. It's so draining to check your email. Yeah. Like oh, I'm spent for the day. But then it gets it off yeah. the list, and 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 it's done. But
2: but i think that i think that so going back to what what's the principle the challenge is that if you open your email and then you find something depressing then given the way that selective attention works so you've got that negative thing top of mind it's very easy then to see everything that is negative after that so i think that's you know that's the principle if that's the principle then just make sure that you're setting your intentions before you open your email you know that can take honestly 30 seconds to say okay what matters today okay all right so what do i want to really pay attention to okay all right now let me have a look at the email you know
1: (laughs) right well i would i if i didn't look at my email i would assume there's something depressing in there that i'm not looking at so you know at least i've got a chance that maybe there isn't something depressing and i'll go look at it so it it doesn't it doesn't matter but yeah. uh, everybody, well, like you say, everybody has their own way of doing things, but that just, I, I don't think there's a one size fits all and and you have to find what, what works for you. But
2: yeah, my peak, uh, peak thinking hours are always in the afternoon, you know, really? that's exactly the opposite to what you read in the productivity literature in general. Yeah. So if I'm thinking about a time when I want to do some writing or I want to, you know, really have sort of. Uh, really in-depth coaching session with, you know, a treasured client, you know, I'll definitely sort of skew it towards late morning to, to afternoon. Yeah. So, you know, you've got to know yourself. You've got to figure out what are your rhythms, when are you sharpest, when are you clearest and, you know, work with that.
1: So back to the main point of this conversation, which is to try to make sure that every day or most days are good days. What else can we do?
2: One of the things that I like to keep front of mind is the fact that, Research is really clear that when you're generous and kind to other people, you get an enormous boost. You know, when you're feeling low or tired, it can feel like exactly the last thing you want to do to kind of think about well, what can I give to other people in terms of warmth or kindness. But actually, it's really it's really reliable. Um, Marty Zelligman, who's uh, arguably the leading light in the field of positive psychology, uh, once said that it was the most reliable intervention uh, that he had ever come across in terms of boosting your sense of well-being immediately. There was a day when I was walking down the street here in New York, um, and it was pouring with rain, just as it has been the last couple of days, actually. And there was a woman ahead of me who was carrying a paper bag with shoes in it. And I I honestly, I don't know why, <laughs> but because of the rain, the, the bag was falling apart. And I was carrying um, double-bagged groceries so I went over to her and I took the outer bag and I gave it to her and she was so grateful. But I <laughs> walked home on air feeling amazing, like I was, you know, enormously connected to the human race and feeling full of the bounteousness of my, you know, my existence. <laughs> and I only just made it home before my, you know, my other bag fell apart myself. But, you know, I, I did that. Yes, I did that would because you know I wanted to help also honestly because I knew the research and it just at the edge of the you know the edge of this sort of thing knowing the research just makes you perhaps a little bit more willing to give a bit of time to stop and give directions to the tourist that's lost to give a hand to the person that's you know that's struggling in the office and if you know that and you know it's going to give you a boost then you know that's a useful thing to carry into each day.
1: If you could, just a couple of other really quick strategies or concepts that people can can take with them that will help them improve
2: the day. Uh, so learning, learning is a huge booster. It turns out that we've, we're inherently uh, wired to find learning new things rewarding. And then, of course, there's all of the good research, which I'm sure lots of people already know, about uh, the power of gratitude. One of the things that I think people perhaps are less aware of, I think most people know that taking time to count your blessings and to say okay what well, you know what is good what is uh, what am i appreciating here i think most people know that that's uh, that's a powerful intervention many people will know the research saying that even you know if you do that for 2 weeks 6 months later you have a boost to your sense of uh, psychological well-being what i think a lot of people may not know is that link back to selective attention and the fact that if you do it, if you say, OK, I'm having a bad day, I've just had a bad commute, let me force myself to think of three things that I'm grateful for or three things that I appreciate in the environment around me. Maybe it's some someone's wearing a nice hat or you see someone, you know, helping someone else with their, with their shopping that's falling out of their rainy bag. You know, just putting good things top of mind is not just going to make you feel better, but it's going to make you more likely to see other good things because of the top-of-mind effect, the fact that whatever is top-of-mind for us drives whatever we then notice next. And so, you know, that's something which we can all use, and it is an intervention that I use pretty much most days. Whenever I feel a bit tense or a bit grumpy, uh, I'll say, okay, let me notice three good things in the next five minutes. And it works even if you do it through gritted teeth.
1: (laughs) You don't sound like the grumpy type, but...
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, but, you know, it's because I I use all of this stuff, you know, I really, really do. I've always been interested in what's the smallest amount of of intervention that I can truly, honestly build into my own life that is easy to build into the grain of, you know, an average daily busy routine. So I've been using this stuff for a really long time. And I yeah, I mean, I I will admit that possibly it's made me a, um, you know, a moderately happy person. (laughs)
1: Great. And the good news is, so can anyone else be a happy person and have a good day if they follow the advice? Caroline Webb has been my guest. The book is How to Have a Good Day. And you'll find a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes for this episode of the podcast. Thanks, Caroline.
2: You're very welcome.
1: As a listener to this podcast, there is a good chance that you like listening to interesting information. And you're about to hear a whole lot of it. John Lloyd is a television producer and host in the UK who started producing a TV show there some time ago called QI, which stands for Quite Interesting. It's all about fascinating information. He's gone on to produce other shows, and there have also been books that have spun off the whole QI idea. The most recent book is called 1,342 Quite Interesting Facts to Leave You Flabbergasted. For example, octopuses prefer high-definition television to ordinary television. Or, the loudest word ever shouted was the word quiet, and it was shouted by a schoolteacher in Northern Ireland. And you might say, hey, wait a minute, how do you know that? (laughs) Says who? Well, if you doubt any of these facts or want to know the source of them, you can go online and you type in qi.com slash 1342, and then you enter the page number that you found the fact, and it will show you the sources of all the facts on that particular page of the book, which is pretty ingenious. Anyway, John Lloyd joins me. Hey, John, welcome.
0: Thanks, Mike. Good to be here.
1: So I've mentioned a few facts that you've come up with. Uh, Dive in and dazzle us with some more.
0: Just randomly, dinosaurs didn't roar. Well, for a start, one of the facts is velociraptors, you know, that you saw in um, Jurassic Park. They were no bigger than turkeys, most of them. Little chicken-sized things. Dinosaurs didn't roar. They mumbled or cooed. So that's another thing. They don't roar like they do in Spielberg movies. Ronald Reagan was a comedian for two weeks. Did you know that? Stand-up comedian? Steve Jobs uh, was scared of buttons. This is a sequence I like in the book. Steve Jobs was scared of buttons. MC Hammer doesn't like hammers. And the Dalai Lama is frightened of caterpillars. And, you know, these things, (laughs) you don't ever hear the word caterpillar and Dalai Lama in the same sentence, do you? It sort of connects up. And similarly, when you think of Steve Jobs, you think, A, genius, genius iPhone, amazing presentation skills, probably quite a sort of powerful personality, quite a scary guy in some ways, very interesting guy. You don't think of a man like that as being frightened of buttons, and it sort of gives it a humanity, you know, somehow.
1: But every picture of him, he's wearing a turtleneck sweater that has no buttons on
0: it. Hey, uh, do you know, that never occurred to me, of course. Now we know why.
1: Yeah. Selfies kill more people than sharks?
0: Well, that's absolutely true. Now, that is something I know about. So sharks, uh, people often terrified of shark's jaws and all that kind of thing. I mean, you're many times, um, Americans are many times more likely to be killed by a cow than a shark, probably bumping into one at night on a road. Sharks kill, it's 22 times more likely. That's another fact in the book. Americans 22 times more likely to be killed by a cow than a shark, probably in, mostly in a road accident, but not all. Cows often butt people to death now. But sharks kill, what, half a dozen people a year worldwide? Uh, human beings kill more than a million sharks a year, a million worldwide. So it's, it's really not terribly fair on, uh, on sharks. And selfies, um, India is the king of selfie deaths. Is people, you know, take a nice photograph, just step back a foot and they fall off a cliff, you know? It's kind of, <laughs> uh-huh. it is actually quite dangerous, selfies, because people are concentrating on taking the picture and not on their own safety.
1: So, how did the Queen end up with her own McDonald's? She owns a McDonald's?
0: Yeah, the, that's right. She owns an industrial estate in Slough, which has got a McDonald's on it. She also owns several pubs, um, one of which is called the Windsor Castle, ironically. The Queen owns a lot of stuff. You know, she—it's—it's uh, it's not in this particular book, but in one of our earlier books, Her Majesty the Queen of England owns, legally owns, one sixth of the Earth's land surface. So legally, she owns all of Canada, all of Australia, all of New Zealand. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, but that—it's—it's it's obviously. If she turned up and said, "I'm going to sell Canada to somebody else, the Russians or something," I think people would object. But you think? she does strict, in strict legal sense, that she owns a sixth of the world's um, land surface.
1: At her McDonald's, has she ever gone down and done a shift working the French fry machine or
0: anything? <laughs> I kind of—that's a, such a good picture, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I'd like to see that. <laughs>
1: Well, since you're sitting there in the U.K., here's one that I liked. London gets less rain than Rome, Venice, or Nice, which is pretty surprising. And interestingly, people in Britain spend five months of their lives complaining about the weather. You also say that 31% of Americans believe they have made contact with the dead. And M&Ms were invented so American soldiers could eat chocolate without it melting in their hands. That's just a few more. And you have one about uh, President Obama.
0: President Obama, when he was uh, president, was the only person outside HBO allowed to watch advanced screenings of Game of Thrones. Quite a privilege, I thought. The Great Wall of China, let's go to the other side of the world. The Great Wall of China was held together with sticky rice. That's what they used instead of cement. Florida has more bear hunters than bears. (laughs) Well, <laughs> that was pretty interesting. <laughs> they don't get a lot of bears there.
1: Must be very frustrating for that. Huh? It must be very frustrating. And again,
0: you have to look up on the source finder how many more bear hunters and bears, which it will tell you, because if it's a lot more, that really would be frustrating if there were only maybe... In fact, how many bears are likely to be in, be- in Florida, do you think? Is that, is that really bear country?
1: I don't I don't know, because I'm on the Alligators. other side of the country, but I, 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 I don't suspect there's a whole lot, but I, maybe, I don't know.
0: But a lot of these facts, that's that's the reason that we have this source finder thing, is because a lot of the facts, people, I've got friends who don't believe them, and that's why we started the source finder, because check it out, we don't make these things up, you know, they are some of them are so weird.
1: Yes, well there are a lot of weird ones in here. Here's a few. The excrement of the sperm whale is worth up to $10,000 a pound. Charles the of France thought he was made of glass. <laughs> Well, wouldn't that be pretty easy to test if you thought you were made of glass? Couldn't you figure that out pretty quick as to whether or not that was true? But anyway, according to you, he wrapped himself in blankets to prevent his butt from shattering. And every time Alfred Hitchcock drank a cup of tea, he smashed the teacup. So those are weird. You have some weird ones that you like?
0: Here's one. We all know about Leonardo da Vinci and the Mona Lisa. But he also designed chairs made of cake, a giant egg whisk as tall as a giraffe, and a horse-powered nutcracker. I mean, that is, that's some crazy guy, isn't it? A horse-powered nutcracker, that's sort of a big nut you must need for that. Seems
1: like he must have had a lot of free time on his hands to...
0: (laughs) He was actually, strangely, Leonardo was... He, it took him I think more than seventeen, nearly twenty years to finish the Mona Lisa. He was famous in his day for not finishing anything. so he he was basically a doodler. He kept thinking oh I'll, I'll go and invent the tank or the scissors or something. He was not very good at concentrating things. When you actually read about his life, you often wonder why he's so famous because he didn't complete a lot of things.
1: On your favorite page, it says in the last fifty years, Insect footsteps have become quieter.
0: Well, that's exactly what I mean. That's where you need the source finder. I can't remember why that is, but that, isn't that an extraordinary thing? How do they measure it? <laughs> and why? <laughs> yeah, right. Who, there, who it's thought the thing? stuff like this. It, this is one of my favorite mad ones, is 46 percent of the population of Japan hides when someone rings the doorbell. So nearly half of Japanese, if you go to their house and ring the doorbell, they'll hide. That's you, you want. You really want to know the backstory to that, don't you?
1: Yes, I do. Do you have it?
0: Well, they're just very shy. They're just very, very shy people. Oh yes, this is a. This really struck me when I found this one out. Computers cannot generate random numbers. Now you would think that's the simplest thing to do, isn't it? You can ask a six-year-old to generate random numbers. But computers can't do it. They have, to, they have to have an algorithm because computers don't invent anything. They have to be instructed. So some coder has to write a sort of fake random number sequence, but it will always eventually repeat itself. Now you think, okay, that's kind of an interesting piece of trivia, but it's much more interesting than that. If you go again to the source finder, and this is something I do know about, the reason this is important is because obviously all lottery numbers are theoretically random, because otherwise a lottery wouldn't be a lottery. But they're not random. There's an algorithm for every lottery sequence ever invented. And if you're really good at computing and programming, you can work out what the algorithm is, not only what the numbers are likely to be, but where the winning ticket is likely to occur in the United States. And there are several people in the United States who are earning upwards of 10, 20 million dollars a year by working out where the the shop is, where the winning ticket is likely to be. And then they go to the shop and they buy basically all the tickets in the shop. They might buy, you know, $5,000 worth of tickets or something. And they get rich doing it. And it's because they've worked out that computers can't generate random numbers.
1: Well, one of the other interesting things about computers I found is that you say that the, the computers that basically operate the nuclear weapons in the United States still run on floppy disks.
0: That's a bit worrying, isn't it? <laughs>
1: yeah, well, I would think so. Yeah, but you know, that's just me.
0: So astronauts have to sleep near fans. You know, those things that go around, so they don't suffocate suffocate in their own exhaled breath. I think that's a really interesting fact, that because, because the breath doesn't go anywhere, there being no gravity, it just hangs around their mouth and nose, and because exhale breath is carbon dioxide, you suffocate. I think that's really fascinating.
1: So here's a couple I like. Drinking one glass of wine makes you more attractive. Drinking a second glass of wine undoes all the good work that the first glass of wine did. Flights from JFK Airport in New York are sometimes delayed so that turtles can be moved off the runway. And being left-handed, this interests me, boys born in the winter are more likely to be left-handed. I wasn't born in the winter, but I, th- I think that's pretty interesting. Uh, okay, your turn.
0: Well, you were t- just talking about the, uh, the floppy disks. During the Second World War, US Navy sailors were given detailed instructions on what to do if caught by a giant clam. I thought that was pretty necessary advice. I mean the chance what are the chances, but apparently they were. Antimatter costs seventeen billion pounds uh, per gram. That's uh, what's that about um, how many billion dollars is that? It's very, very expensive to make. Another World War I. During the Second World War, the Allies considered dropping glue onto Nazi troops to make them stick to the ground. <laughs> <I> <laughs> and thought here's I- one. I know this is one of my favorites in the book, Mike, actually. And you can test this. You can do it in two ways. You can do it online or you can do it for yourself. It is the most extraordinary counterintuitive fact. 96% of people can tell the difference between the sound of hot and cold water being poured. You wouldn't think you would be able to, would you? But it's it absolutely right. Try it online. Just put hot and cold water being poured sound or something into Google. And it is the most extraordinary thing. Something intuitive, you know that's hot water and that's cold water. and It's the same water being poured into a, into a jug.
1: What's this uh, tree's sleep at night? I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, they, they do it to rest their branches. Um, there's an Actually, I was just reading about tr- trees are the most extraordinary things. They communicate with each other underground. They've got a kind of radio network under the earth. They sort of warn each other of things. And the latest information is that trees, not only do they sleep at night to rest their branches, but they've got a kind of heartbeat, what, um, a sort of built-in uh, pump, a heart pump, because people have always wondered um, how it is that the moisture gets from either from the leaves into the body of the trunk or up from the ground through the wet earth into the the trunk and up the branches. And what they've discovered is that they have a very slow kind of heartbeat. Uh, For example, I mean, what is a human heartbeat? You probably know this. I can never remember. How many beats a minute is a heart?
1: I think I think the average resting heartbeat is somewhere between you know sixty and hundred beats a
0: minute. A blue whale's heart beats about nine times a minute, very very slow because it's such a big thing. And a tree's as it were heart doesn't actually have a physical heart, but the pump mechanism is very very slow, so you don't notice it. And they've just got this new technology. They've realised that there's this regular beat and it's pumping slowly, pumping the water up and down the tree trunk because all the latest research about plants plants are you know we we take them so much for granted like so many things in the world but there's a mimosa plants for example learn from experience i mean that is so weird isn't it if you because mimosa plants have a thing when they're threatened they kind of close up their flowers and their leaves they curl up into a ball if it's you know uh, a storm or something like that and so what they did they took these mimosa plants in a in a pot and they dropped them off a table and the mimosa mo- plant knowing because it could feel the gravity is something's happening so it closed up and they did it again it closed up again and after the third time they stopped closing up because they think oh you're crying wolf nothing's going to happen how can a mimosa plant think, how how does that happen? I just, I find that extraordinary. But that's what we do at QI. It's always, every day, something completely weird we learn that's new.
1: And I think everybody today learns something, whether they, whether they believe it or not. John Lloyd has been my guest. He's a television producer in the UK. And uh, the latest book to come out of his QI series is 1,342 Quite Interesting Facts to Leave You Flabbergasted, and there's a link to it in the show notes. Thanks, John. If you ever have to present an idea in a meeting, try not to go first. Research shows that in a meeting, the first idea presented is often attacked by everyone in the room because energy levels are high at the start of any meeting. You're better off to present your idea about halfway through the meeting after people have had a chance to settle in. Also, try to use fewer words. People who are insecure about an idea or even just insecure about speaking tend to over-explain things. But less is more. Remember in the movie Apollo 13, Tom Hanks said, and and so did the real Apollo astronaut, uh, Houston, we have a problem. That's a concise way of presenting information that sticks. It's a lot better than... um, Houston, sorry to bother you, but, and, and I could be wrong about this, but uh, something's not quite right. <laughs> and that is something you should know. I'm sure you know people who would really enjoy all those interesting facts that John Lloyd and I spoke about, or would like to hear Caroline Webb talk about having a great day every day. Share this podcast with someone you know and ask them to listen. I'll bet they thank you for it.